0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? I'm your host, Geordie Bailey.
1: And I'm your other host, Duncan Nickel.
0: You don't got anything cute to say, Duncan?
1: Well, I considered a really big one about calling me your noble steed. Um, but then there were connotations yeah, yeah, that came I, I was wondering. I spent all week wondering, is Duncan going to call himself my horse? I really was. I was like, oh my, oh my his noble steed that carries him across the, the fields of podcasting. Um, but late last night, I just went, there's no way i can say that without all these other connotations of um writing mm, mm, coming in yeah. which I, I don't want
0: <laughs> how about the spirit with two arrows in his back following me to the end of my quest
1: i'll happily be the spirit with two hours in his back that ca- that follows you to the end of your podcasting quest Audie. that's me all right welcome everyone to our book club Welcome oh, to our book club. We Every
0: week, we every every two weeks, we sit down, read a book, and then we discuss it. Um, last time we recorded an episode, uh, when we did Twilight, Duncan, you chose to read Green Rider, for both of us to read Green Rider. A book that neither of us ever heard of until you got it for Christmas and then didn't read for six months.
1: Exactly. Green Rider. So, I'm new to this. Geordie's new to this. I'm also new to the author. This is by Kristen Brisson. It came out in 1998. It is the mm-hmm. first of a series of seven. Uh, but I'm going to say now, this works quite nicely as a standalone. So if you were like, oh, yeah, cut off by that yeah fact, it's true. Go for it.
0: Yeah. Uh, first book of a series of seven. Turns out the last book in that series was written last year. This is the only book series Kristen Bisson has ever written. And she's been doing it for 23 years.
1: Wow. I didn't actually know that. Mm-hmm. What's that so? Twenty-three years, yeah. seven books. That's one of three. That's one if three. Averaged about three years though. That is a decent pace in the fantasy genre.
0: Yeah, I looked it up. It's every four years she writes a book, which is kind of a long time to write um, a single book. Kinda like um, I think it's a reasonable amount. She's certainly not firing off one by one, but it's surprisingly consistent. Every four years, bam, bam, bam.
1: Do you know what? If you think four years is a long time, Geordie, oh, I've got some fancy author- Don't... authors to introduce you oh, to. yeah, yeah, yeah. Shut up. <laughs> what?
0: Leave George alone, Duncan. Stop bullying Oh, you. it's not just George. Anyway. There are so many now. Okay. But yeah, anyway. Uh, let's crack on into it. Duncan, what did you think of Green Rider?
1: I liked it. But this oh. book... Okay, I'm going to really summarize it. I was thinking, how can I summarize this book, Geordie? This book, to me, is a 10 out of 10, 7 out of 10.
0: Oh, 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 okay, okay. So I think I see what you mean. I, first of all, I really like this book. I thought it was fantastic. That's um, uh, 10 out of 10, 7 out of 10. So it is, the book itself has the semblance of a 7 out of 10 book, a book that can only ever be 7 out of 10, and it does it 100, 100 Uh, it does it 100%
1: exactly this isn't the way this book is yeah. pitched you know it's not going it's not like the next lord of the rings or like game pro, it's not like going for that mm. next level of like epic or political intrigue or moral quandaries aren't being put forward in this book it's not doing something mm. necessary revolutionary new although in the context of 1998 i'm not sure but i don't think so even then but what it does yep. it does as well as i could have Imagine this being done. Yeah, this book is
0: YA. Like, I didn't see it coming, but this is an era of YA literature I had never read before. Um, I obviously knew that YA had existed for a long time, and Rice has been kicking around for a long time, but this, um, this is a completely different style of YA literature than I'm used to. It has none of the same conventions of modern YA, and it felt a lot more like a fantasy adventure story and emphasis on the word adventure that's from like the 70s or something
1: oh it gave me if i had to when i started out reading this book and it, it did change towards the end a little bit of that so i'm going to compare it to tolkien but not to lord of the rings mm. it gave me a bit of the hobbit vibe
0: i exactly yes exactly it also reminded me a bit of like um something like own in terms of structure like the edge chronicles like you just bounce from one danger to another. Out of the frying pan into the fire. Location to location to location. The first, probably like a little over half of this book, is exclusively about a journey. Um, a, and it starts really suddenly. Uh, almost too suddenly, I'd say. I really wasn't sure about this book to begin with. Because when the story kicks off, um, our main character, Kerrigan, has been suspended from her school. And she's run away. And immediately in the first chapter, her adventure begins. She runs into a, 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 a horseback rider with two arrows in his back. He falls down, almost dead. He gives her, says, carry on my last message. It's a really important mission. The fate of a country depends on this. Deliver this to the king. And then he dies. And we're in. We're going.
1: You talk about the first chapter. What you've just described... Is in the first four pages. Mm. It is so quick, and I found that so refreshing. I actually adored it. I actually fell in love in those opening moments. I was like, "This is such a big book, and you're getting going so fast." Thank you. Yeah,
0: I think it is a. I thought this is a little too long. I need to be a little bit more anchored in the character of Kerrigan. But looking back, I think it was a really smart choice because we the stuff we kind of would have liked to know about her beforehand to give weight to her decision, it kind of gets retroactively filled in. And I kind of feel like, um, Kristen Britton was kind of discovering the character of Kerrigan along the way, because as a character, she begins the story as a complete blank slate for the reader to put themselves into. she barely ever speaks in conversation. I noticed this when she was with the Berry Sisters. And that's the moment in a book when it turns around and it starts getting really good. Having up to a being just sort of fine. At that point in a book, she kind of starts talking, having conversations with people, asking them questions. And not just saying yes or no to whoever she runs across.
1: I would take what you've just said there about the author. It feels like the author was discovering the character she went along, and I would expand that mm. to both the, the world and, I think, the story. Mm. This really gave me the sense, and I don't know for certain, but this gave me the sense that, like, as the author is writing the story, she go, what do I want to happen next? Okay, that's what the next bit of geography is going to be, sort of, like, accommodate mm. that plot point. Uh, this particularly came to, for those that read the book, uh, there's a town called North. And it Ray gave me the vibe mm-hmm. of like, oh yeah, North exists, so that this character point can exist.
0: Yes, right. And
1: I felt this a lot. And I don't know, maybe it's just my edition, but Geordie, I did you uh, listen to this book? I did. Right. In my physical edition, and from what I've seen online, no map. Sure. And I think that's a very interesting decision for a book that relies so much on the journey, compared to something like The Hobbit. Mm. The Hobbit, you see the map and everything marked out on that map. Is a stop point and an adventure.
0: Well, well, I think we shouldn't. I think Tolkien is a fair comparison in terms of the tone of a book, especially as it relates to something like The Hobbit. I don't think we should use Tolkien's standards for mapping out the world and um, and the time it takes to do things. Um, Tolkien was completely obsessed in writing The Lord of the Rings that you could. You, you, you could tell how far Frodo and Sam were on their journey by, like, the phase of the moon. He was mapping it out precisely. He, there, there's notes about how he was doing maths to see when the hobbits were supposed to meet up with Gandalf, how long Gandalf would have had to been being chased by the Nazgûl in order to miss them at Weathertop. I think that's a little bit too high of a standard. And in when it comes to maps... I'm not a map purist. Um, We discussed in an episode which doesn't exist and we should never talk about how some stories really don't require maps. You know, like um, they can have a map in a book and it really doesn't draw an impact on the story. I wouldn't be so obsessed with the geography of the series as a whole, especially since Kerrigan's Path is wonderfully lackadaisical.
1: So I'm gonna to have to uh, counter that point because I think a map would have helped, particularly in the first half of this novel, because I never had a real idea of how far, like you said, you're like oh, it would diminish the distance. Actually, but it yeah, also sets that's true. how far we've got to go yet. I was like, oh, she's made it to the town of North, as an example. I'm like, mm. is that close? Is it like she's almost at the gate and like the enemy on her heels, or does she still have? You piles? know
0: what? That's completely fair. That's completely fair. And it's even, that's even a criticism I had whilst I was reading the book. I only just sort of remembered that.
1: Yeah, right
0: at the beginning of the book, Kerrigan wants to take the road straight to the capital. And her horse won't let her. The horse is like, I'm not going that way. And he leads her north. And um, I remember thinking, how far away is the capital? And how far away is home? Like, are you going way, way out of your way to deliver this letter? Or is it like, is it like a little diversion?
1: And what's interesting in this particular story is it almost becomes a bit of a mute point. As we're getting you know, sorry people, here's a bit real big spoiler here. The wild ride. Ah, I can't really mm. get to this so quickly if I really want to talk further, because this relates to the map and the distances. There is a magical mm-hmm. power in this world, uh, called the Wild Ride, where basically we get to this sort of emotional climax of her journey. Bear in mind we don't really know where she is geographically along her journey, where essentially Magical forces come into play, and just teleport her the last mm-hmm. little bit, or the great distance. Yeah, I I don't know, and I really feel that's the bit where I really felt like I missed that map because I'm like, has this magical teleport that's just happened, taken her yeah, across half the globe? I, that is, or just popped. I her feel over?
0: like it's yeah, it's it's really disappointing we have to talk about the wild ride so soon because I actually feel like it is uh, something that negatively affects the story. It is a story about travel. It is a story about. Um, overcoming the perils that come from crossing a dangerous world, and so the fact that a teleport can suddenly be implemented to take her that last leg, um, it I it was so shocking when I was reading it that I thought it might have literally been a dream, like it wasn't actually happening. Um, but um, but it did, and that was quite disappointing. I got the feeling that. Kristen Britton knew that there was a certain amount of logistics that was going to kick in when Kerrigan got to the capital. How is she going to get into the castle? How is she going to prove that she's a, that she's acting as a green rider? Are we going to have to go through a bunch of boring scenes of people ratifying her documents? So she said, well, I just want her to appear before the king to hand over her message. That's the impression I got. And I feel like that is um, one of the things that detracts from the story.
1: Taking back onto that point of flight, the journey, I know we sort of touched on this, Geordie, So how was your journey across this whole book? You said that you liked it, really liked it overall. You were iffy in the first chapters. Mm-hmm. This book, I felt like a book of several parts to me, not only because the adventure, the journey, quite episodic, but I felt there was a really clear break at the two third point when she reaches the king. Mm-hmm. How did your yeah. feelings sort and- of fluctuate over that sort of journey?
0: Um, I, I, my experience with the book basically only got better over time. Um. I started off a bit iffy, wasn't quite sure, and then I just started to enjoy myself more and more. The wild ride and the subsequent arrival at the King's Court was a bit of a shock to the system, but I was really pleased that Kerrigan had so many more people to talk to at this point, and as such, I really started to enjoy everything else, and I really started to to like the other characters, because we had these little opportunities when Kerrigan was at rest, that the story jumped around and showed us other people's perspectives, including the bad guys, including, um, uh, Captain Layman? Lauren? Hang on, get my notes up.
1: This is a big one for me. I really enjoyed this book, but I'm going to admit now to all our listeners, I had a terrible time with names in this book.
0: Oh my god, it's ridiculous! These are some crazy names. Also, so the audiobook pronounced the main character's name Kerrigan. And that is her name. It's pronounced, it's spelled Kerrigan. Kerrigan is a name. Like, I know a, a person called Kerrigan. I didn't want to bring up, but i Kerrigan Galadian.
1: It had this almost, um, I don't want to do another Tolkien comparison, but it did feel like this author was trying to fancy up mm-hmm. quite a lot of the names. Like,
0: yeah, I yeah. could
1: just call her Kerry, but no how
0: it reminds me a lot of um the dritz novels and how a lot of the names in them are just regular people's names fantasied up like there's a character called Katy Bree you can call her Katie man it's fine just call her Katie uh so duncan what's um the 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 brave green rider who gives her her mission what's his name
1: oh no don't do this to me no 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 that's not fair um
0: I don't know. It's spelled F apostrophe R-Y-A-N. So F apostrophe Ryan. And then... His name is a bit of a pun, I think. Cobble Bay. Like cobble for a road and bay for a horse. Uh, Apparently it's pronounced Frian Cobble Bay.
1: Frian. Frian. Yeah. Frian makes sense. Yeah. Like a male version of Freya. Was it
0: for... That... Was it... Mm, Yeah, sure. Um... There is a male version of Freya. It's Frey, but whatever. <laughs> um, her brother and her lover. Gross.
1: I don't want this to come across as a knock to the book, um, but it does give you this element, particularly for me reading it, where a lot of the names are just like. I spoke about this before. That's a symbol. What's that, King? The King Zakari? Mm. Yeah, that's just King Zed.
0: That's a, that's a literal name, Duncan. That's a literal name. Zachary is a name, it's where we get the name Zach.
1: Okay. Well, follow Mr. Zack. You're gonna get a lot from me of Oh yes, and then she meets this really great character, the uh the stable girl at the castle. Or, you know, the the love interest man. Yes, him. I knew him. That's you.
0: Name's Captain Laren. Captain Larry. Anyway. It. I don't know why we Laren Anyway, um
1: What do they even say? <laughs> but do you know who has a perfect name? Well, which one... the best name that we eventually find out isn't their name, but I love this naming. And that's the horse.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that's true. If we don't know the horse's uh, name,
1: the noble Steve.
0: The second most important character in the book is, is a horse, a su- super intelligent, but non-talking horse, which is re- a relief that it doesn't talk. Uh, but it's such a good character. Like um, it's, it's really hard. I, I, when I write, I find it really hard to write animals and I really appreciate like the the creative liberty in making your horse companion super intelligent. Not like it's human level, but it like has instincts that it can follow, and like it can detect danger and it responds to calls really well. It's really convenient to the story.
1: It is, but I do really appreciate that. I felt like uh, Kristen Britton, the way she's written this horse to be both intelligent but never completely unhorse-like there's no point mm-hmm. i felt like it's a still human skittish. was in there so what are the horses in fantasy literature any standouts no no I,
0: I there aren't any standouts i really don't care about um horses in in books they they just don't stand out to me the only example which is counter to that isn't fantasy it's science fiction but it's pretty close it's um the Chaos Walking trilogy. Have you ever read
1: those? No, no, no. I mean it's on then.
0: Oh, they're very good. It starts with a knife of never letting go. In the second book, the main character gets a horse and he names her Angharad, which is a Celtic horse thing. And um she's lovely. She's such a good horse. Um, all all creatures in that world, in the world of Chaos Walking, except for human women, all their thoughts can be heard out loud. Um so all animals are noisy and, and project their thoughts straight outwards. So you have a basically a telepathic horse. And so you get straight the mind of a horse's open book. And it's, it's very sweet and herd focused. And like it calls the main character boycott and like wants to look after him and stuff.
1: Oh, that is sweet. But yeah, that does feel like that's still an example of like relying on that bit of humanization. With the, te- the the mind reading. Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. something I actually was thought that we might get in this book. Like, we'd get to a point where the horse would somehow be actually magical. Either... Well, I had bets on this. I was Either, either they're going to be able to, like, mind read, or we're going to get to a point where it's going to, like, grow wings. And I generally thought one mm. of those two things was going to happen if this novel... Uh, and I'm glad they didn't. Yeah. I'm glad it was just a horse. And I was trying to... Yeah,
0: the sense of magic in this book is one of its strong points
1: it's kind of um i don't want to say subdued because it's there and it's actually very uh, prominent in terms of the plot but it doesn't have too much of a whiz bang and it's got a lot of mysticism like the average joe Mm -hmm. on the street is going to question whether or not it exists even some people in the high court are like does it exist does it work like that and even the people who Mm -hmm. use it are very much like these are magical items um they seem to work when we want them to, so we're not going to question it in much more detail.
0: I, I would bet good money that this is a series that would start with, um, oh, and no one really knows if magic is real for the general populace. It's only the select few who know. And then by the last book, everyone in the world will know that magic is real and they won't even freak out if they see it happen. It's that sort of book that is sort of ripe for magical escalation to occur. But the magic which exists is sort of like, It sort of reminds me a little bit of Stranger Dreamer in that most of the characters get access to Luke. They get one power. They go under one special power and it's kind of subtle and it doesn't break the world entirely. But it's like if all the characters were, um, you know, the Mazathian from uh, Stranger Dreamer and then a couple of characters were just Gandalf walking around with a whole suite of incredibly powerful magic in their back pocket
1: Interestingly enough, though, we don't really have a Gandalf in this book. Talking about sort of YA mm. fantasy. Typically, I know, late 90s, things are starting to change. But still, that kind of Gandalf figure, very popular. And we don't particularly have mm-hmm. a mentor. Um, That's true. If anything, the closest mentor we have to, for Carrigan is the horse. And I really like There's that. Something,
0: yeah. There's something to that. She often reflects back on, like, other lessons she's learnt but part of the whole theme of the story is Kerrigan gets thrown in the deep end. She, um, she's plunged into danger and it's by like, the skin of her teeth and her wits that she's going to make it through. And by the end of the book, like she's, she's super competent and she's refined her skills at survival to the point where she's like thriving in a dangerous situation. Um, but it's it, but you but you get this sense that you know she's earned everything. You know she started the book somewhat competent. She's ended the book extremely confident. There are other characters who right from the start, y- your Conan's. They tell you he's already as good as he needs to be. Everything will be a test of his skills, but he never has to get better. That is not the case here, and it's so satisfying to see her overcome all those trials.
1: I really, really liked Carrigan, And I don't think I can kind of overstate that, how much me liking her affected my enjoyment of the novel. Mm-hmm. And it really does fit into what you've just said. She goes through trials. Like, the bits in this book, I was actually taken aback by kind of how out there it went for her sort of challenges mm. and lack of a better word, the suffering she has to endure to sort of make this journey.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And it endeared mm-hmm. me to her. You know, and the fact that she chooses not to give up, you're mm-hmm. like, yeah. There are bits in this story where I'm gonna like, yeah, I will cash it in there. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't make it through that bit. Yeah. The, so does the, he the her kind of like when, grit her teeth? When
0: She's on her, her journey, and the sort of second place she goes after her first encounter with danger is she runs to this this these two sisters called the Berry Sisters. The closest thing you have to Gandalf figures are just people who know about magic, but aren't helping in your story. Saying, okay, once you leave these doors. We'll give you some magical gifts. Maybe more Elrond than Gandalf. And then you're out of luck.
1: Oh, no, 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 no. They're a very particular Tolkien comparison. They're not know, Tom, they're Tom Bombadil. Shut Jeez. the fuck up. They're How Tom dare Bombadil. you
0: insult the Berry Sisters like that.
1: They are Tom Bombardillo. They're not
0: Tom Bombadil.
1: Oh, they are, though. Because they are no, undefined. They contribute they to the Tom story. Bombadil. This that whole precludes section them from is Tom, Tom Bombadil. Bombadil.
0: They give her two useful magical no items and tell Bombadil her massive information Maybe a little which, bit of,
1: Elvon. which affects
0: our understanding of a book from beginning to end. They tell us that magic exists. They help her receive visions of the future. They make her play her first game of intrigue in the story, which is really thematically important. They are not Tom Bombadil.
1: I'm going to start with like these two characters. This is my argument. Okay, mm. They're in this magical secluded space. It's like the first point of safety in the story. Um... They're a mm-hmm. little bit removed. They don't seem to be fully engaged with the, the ongoings of the world. They have all the magical items. Mm. Uh, when she leaves the place, it sort of disappears and they're not seen again. Um, and it felt like that when she arrives at the Berry Sisters, this was the point on the journey where the author didn't know the rest of the story. And the visions of the future to me, if I was to be a cynical man, Were the points where it's like, okay, if I have these visions, I can foreshadow whatever else is happening.
0: Why are you so convinced this wasn't planned out? What about it feels... There are lots of books I can read and I'm like, ah, I can feel how this wasn't planned out. Philip Marlowe books don't feel planned out. Um, What about this book makes you think there was no structure here? Because there are lots of things in it which make it seem like it was meticulously planned traitors being revealed are, p- are a particular
1: point. Do you know what? That is a good point. And actually, maybe I am being unfair, because yeah. I think I made this assumption early on with the more episodic nature, and I have stuck to it. And now I'm thinking, because I'm about to go, well, Georgie, and I was about to hit you with, like, you know, this sort of episodic bit in the journey, that then, like, you could almost edit out. But then I sort of went, oh, no. And actually, oh, God, I'm going to have to undo myself now. Okay. Because okay mm. i was gonna say if you've got these episodic parts in this adventure that could be taken out context but then as i went to say that i reviewed each one in my mind i'm like the mm. battle of the scorpion i'm like learns to fight learns about the dark magic oh and it sets up her like recovering mm-hmm. later that's like well then you've got the mercenaries no they come back very strongly later or oh, when well, you got the time mm-hmm. at the north oh no but then she runs into the people the protesters the anti-king people i'm like okay they come back later and like in that moment, I was about to put forward my argument. Yeah. And I've the last encounter,
0: which you haven't mentioned yet, is the second encounter of Captain Imarez. But that's foreshadowed by the spyglass because she sees into the future. She sees that he's missing a hand. And in that later confrontation, she cuts off his hand.
1: Yeah, okay, it's really well put together. The introduction of intrigue is really clever, and the magical items they give I her agree, agree. It, are used in the It is a really good book, and it, 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 it's a
0: really well-written adventure this is a really story good book. in particular. That's, that's the key word. I wasn't adventure. expecting it. But there's also a strong element of political intrigue in the book.
1: There's an element of political intrigue. I don't want to mislead people into thinking this is sort of a Game of Thrones, Mazalan mm. sort of political intrigue. There's like one political intrigue plot... That I think is nicely motivated, and it lends itself because it's not the de facto cause. It's like a darker evil magic, but it gives a really nice human element. To
0: no, it's not. Of... Oh,
1: why am I keep? I'm doing a lot of Tolkien today. This book isn't actually that Tolkien, but it gives this like instead of just having your Sauron, like the the enmity of evil, it gives a really nice human component to the dark magic forces that are motivated almost completely separately. Manipulated by, maybe. You know what, Duncan, you're speaking of, since we're talking about comparisons, and you love making
0: comparisons, when I was reading this book, I didn't really have a lot of frame of reference to compare it yep. to things. Like, The Hobbit's kind of works, and the structure of going from action to action to adventure to adventure, Something in something like The Edge Chronicles was... Suitable, but are there any other books which feel the same to you? Because I'm not sure I've run across many of them.
1: I am thinking, Mm. I am thinking, and the answer is somewhat no. And it has several elements here because you've got the the long journey, quest across the land. Okay, see that in a lot, but what you don't have is a consistent fellowship. Mm. You don't have that group, so that's, that rules out your Belgrads. Mm-hmm. Because then you have, everyone goes on the journey together and they all talk about it constantly. So you've got the lone, maybe the lone swordsman. Well, what's interesting here is that a lot of lone swordsman, lone swordsman stories, uh, looking at you, the Witcher, they're not actually that alone, mm-hmm. um, full of it. No. Not a lot
0: of it's hard to write a character who's alone. You know, yeah. There's a reason why so many lone swordsmen have little kids with them.
1: Exactly. So I am flicking through. And there's sort of elements that you think are like others. Oh, she went to the school. She got kicked out of school. But that's a plot point, not a part in the story.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you never actually see her at the school. Like, the closest we come is a flashback to the duel which got her kicked out. The closest I've come, and here's the deal. The sensation of reading this book reminded me of another book I've read, which I never finished and actually didn't start. It was a book my sister was reading at piano practice once, and I just picked up from the page she was reading at and read a couple of chapters. And I really enjoyed it, Um, but it was her book, so I never read it properly. But that sensation of reading this book... And the, the, the internal monologue, and the, the somewhat close to a school setting, which was now kind of distant, and the sense of dark magic all around. And here's the thing, I'm not sure what book that was. I feel like it was called The like Wizard's Apprentice, or The Magician's Apprentice, or something.
1: Wait, sorry, can you roll back there? The Magician's Apprentice, is in Eamon Feist?
0: I don't know, maybe. I think there was a person with a hood over their face on the cover.
1: Ah, who knows. Um, I was going to draw one other comparison, and that I was... I did get Carrigan... Bear in mind, she predates, uh, predates this character by quite a bit. Gave me slight Vin vibes mm. from Mistborn, but only lightly. Mm. And to be honest, Vin has as a character is a lot more about her, like, her own internal confidence where Carolyn actually has a lot of confidence in this story. It's only her competency that just needs to be brought up, just up to snuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah, she's aware of her... She's very aware of her limitations and has a good sense of what she can and can't do, which is refreshing. Like, she's self-assured without resorting to kind of lunacy. It means that when she gives an assessment of how much danger she's in, um, it sets the stakes appropriately. Like, when she fights for scorpion, it's the first moment in the book where she's had to fight anything, I think. Like, she, yeah. she has a sword at hand, but there's such a great sense of, of peril. Just, like, just being getting stuck in this, like, giant spider web, which it's left, um, as its, like, babies start to crawl up. A, a horrible moment, by the way. I don't like creepy crawlies, so having them, like, the sensation of being stuck somewhere as little monster insect things are crawling up your leg and you have to kick them off is horrible. Really well-written scene.
1: It was, and it really led in, There's a at the end of this scene, when she's, like, wounded, I love the fact that, like, her first thing is, like, her, like, staggering away to a river to kind of wash her wounds. It's such a nice scene of, like, she's won, but she's so spent doing it. That's what's so
0: great about this book is that she's competent, but she's not superhuman. And that whole scene is like Kerrigan runs into a monster and is immediately overcome. She's being dragged away in this massive claw and a great monster, kind of uh, great for a Conan fan, because it's like, what if an animal was really big, but also kind of spooky. <laughs> and that's what it is. It's this big silver. It's, shaped like a crab it has a scorpion's tail and it spins spiders webs so it's like a bunch of different creepy crawlies all thrown together
1: oh it was and i hate i love this thing yeah. because also we get to see other animals caught in its webs and i found this so mm-hmm. always disturbing hearing like it describes it in quite a unpleasant bit of detail like the other animals struggling mm-hmm. and like suffering in pain as it's like moving closer yeah. to carrigan yeah, but I do like the fact that it's also... She does need help in this moment. And I think that's something important to kind of reflect on. In a lot of her, like, close scrapes, mm-hmm. she does get magical assistance. But it never, I feel, demeans what she's going through or what she's accomplishing on her own.
0: That's right. Uh, when when she... So the magical assistance here is that she has this flower and every time she plucks a petal off, help will come to her aid, which is which is such a fantastic sort of type of magic to have at your disposal because as a, you know as an author just being able to say help gets to show up you get to have that moment of oh help comes out of nowhere to save the day isn't that convenient or it's also having a great reason why help can just come out of nowhere you've got five petals every time you use one you got a chance that someone will come to save you in this case giant talking bird i love the giant talking bird and what's great about the talking bird is that it can't save the day it shows up and says oh sorry i can help but i can't save you because she's stuck in a big spider web and he's a bird he'll get tangled up in the web so he kind of has to like he helps by like chasing off some of the 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 like baby monsters but he's like he basically has to talk her through escaping so she still has to win by herself she just gets advice that's so. That's fantastic. That's so well
1: written. And it's balanced out isn't it? because then you get that opening to the scene, which is always, "Can I reach the flower?" You know, there's that initial struggle where she like, well, can't mm-hmm. get the flower, she can't get the help, and the countdown element of the flower—the five petals were going, "Oh no, one left, one left. How many times can this work?" Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. It's beautifully done. And there's so many other books where you get that kind of it circumvents that. So a is ex machina. Help came out of nowhere and help just mm-hmm. save the day.
0: It's such a good action scene. And it's probably like the most exciting one of the book. But it means that when all the subsequent ones come up, you have the same sense of exhilaration and fun that comes from a good action scene.
1: I'm truly elated by like your obvious joy at this scene and this book. It's been way too long since I've read a good sword fight, Duncan. You know, they're less common than you think, particularly sword fights against um, like animals or monsters. Sword fights against other yeah. humans I find often kind of work rather well because there's a lot of history, like real world history, you can pull on to describe a sword fight. Mm. But to make a monster sword fight interesting, you know, the ducking, the weaving, the thought, what does this monster have? Mm-hmm. I love this thing with its claws. It's like, watch the cross. Oh, but it's also got a stinger. Where's the soft spot? Mm-hmm. And you can really feel mm-hmm. Kagan. Yeah, you know, she's having to not only just, like, physically be strong, but she's having to think a lot on her feet. hmm And it just makes her such an... I, honestly, I cannot stress how much how I love her as a character for being smart, yeah. resilient. Um, could you say she has she's lacking some faults?
0: Um, Kerrigan has the typical faults you'd expect from a character who's just beginning... Um, the story in which she's, um, you know, she's plunged into a world of intrigue, which is that she's not, she's not prepared for, for games of intrigue, literally and metaphorically. Um, she's, she's a bit of a blunt instrument. She'd rather, once this is all over, she wants to go home. She's not quite adept at all the, the subtleties in the world around her. And like I said, like she's aware of her limitations, which is a good trait to have for not getting a character killed. But it also means that she's not going out there and mowing through people. There's a character whom I'm going to introduce you to later, Duncan, who we're going to have a lot of fun talking about for all sorts of reasons. Her name is Selena Sardofian. Um, It's a book series I think you will actually enjoy um, for a lot of reasons, genuine and ironic. (laughs) It's the Throne of Glass series. But the thing that characterizes her is that She's she knows she's the most badass character who's ever lived. <laughs> so she's like, I walk into a room. and I know I can kill everyone in this room easily. She says it all the time. It's so funny. Um, that's not what we have in Kerrigan. Kerrigan knows that uh, she can't beat up everyone in the room. That's where the peril comes from. And for that reason, she doesn't need to have like fatal flaws because she's far from perfect. And as a fantasy hero, she doesn't have to worry about hubris
1: moving on from carrigan then so carrigan i'd say YA main character 10 out of 10 what you want human yeah basically goes through struggles still relatable but mm-hmm. has all the good tendencies that you want to represent without it being p- a paragon
0: yeah absolutely you're right i think she's exactly she's the best sort of YA protagonist i think you couldn't say it better
1: well done in Britain I, I was not expecting and to be honest I didn't pick this as a like a counterpoint to Twilight intentionally but I think it has formed one
0: I thought you might have I thought you might have done so until last till the last episode where you explained your reasons I thought this was going to be like a dig at Twilight but I'm pleased to see that it wasn't and that really these aren't comparable books in the slightest.
1: I think they are comparable though in terms of when you look at the protagonists. I was just like, oh, could you imagine Twilight is better with more like Kerrigan?
0: No, they're not comparable. <sighs> like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll double down on this. All right. Like, back in the day, people used to compare characters like Bella Swan and Katniss Everdeen. No. These aren't comparable stories. One is a romance set in a high school. The other is a game of life and death where being action-oriented is super important. If Kerrigan were in Twilight, it would be a bad book because she's not designed for that type of book. She'd be bored as a character in that scenario. The reason why this book's work is that she's out going on adventures and discovering that she likes the sense of freedom and, and being out there in a the world, not cooped up in a mundane world. These aren't comparable books.
1: You're right, and ultimately the point of the character is to aid the narrative and they're mm-hmm. both designed perfectly to aid the narratives that the author is telling. So To summarise, we love Carrigan. What are the other characters, Geordie? Uh Particularly, I want to talk about the villain, Merwell, next. Because I don't know that I have a lot to say about him. But I do want to say that I liked him. Yeah, such a good antagonist. He had a very really nice balance between sort of moustache-twirling, mm-hmm. uh, competent yet slightly incompetent, Um, he was evil sort of in his own sort of desires but also Mm -hmm. i like the fact that he wasn't completely twisted this isn't sadistic you know he's very much oh kill them not let's torture them playfully Mm -hmm.
0: yeah he's conventionally evil he's exactly the right amount of evil where you can tell he's self-assured and even sort of having a good time and reveling how evil he is but it reminded me a lot of reading *Dune* and the chapters that focus on Baron Harkonnen.
1: Oh, now I would say that Baron Harkonnen is far more the twisted villain than a uh, Merwell yeah, is. Yeah,
0: that's that definitely is true. He he's more evil. Um, I mean, for one thing, like <laughs> this this guy is not preying on little boys. That's 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 quite different. No, but I do want to come back um, to that. Yes, uh, we have to. That's right. We do have to talk about some unpleasant matters in relation to this book. Um, but he's really fun to read about, like seeing things from his perspective. So he provides us insight into what the bad guy's plans are. And it's drip fed to us bit by bit. We start to understand that there's this political conspiracy going on, something to do with the dark magics, which are hunting Ker- Kerrigan. And it's all wrapped up in these really mundane, straightforward political desires. One man wants power. This is a ruthless man. He has these stories about being a younger man and like hunting a bear and being mauled by it and then hunting it down himself in revenge and wearing its skin. So you get the sense that like this man is, is, is really dangerous, even though he's an old man and he's a bit lost in the past, he, there's still a danger to him. And those are perfectly balanced. He is simultaneously incredibly dangerous. And simultaneously, not a threat. Because he's not as clever as he thinks he is. Because he's not as dangerous as he thinks he is. And as the book goes along, he's he's just so enjoyable to see his plans rise up, to see his plans fall apart. Every chapter spent with him is like, this is
1: so good. What I love about him is this, this moment where this just shows that he's not like, this twisted evil, he is mostly just an arsehole who has power. Like the That's true the six and the has villain. given him power. You know, the this the way land is handed out by the king has given him power and unfortunately yeah. this guy's an arsehole. I think it's best summed up in this moment when he's having a bath and he's just kind of like chastising the boy yes! that's like serving. And he's not like being he's not being evil about it, he's not being twisted or sick. He's just being a really dickish boss. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's being a Karen. <laughs> like, don't talk me off like that. No, no, pat it down, pat it down.
0: Mm. It reminds me of um, two months ago. Uh, I was called at the office and I answered a phone. And we had a, a customer who was asking these kind of difficult questions. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm afraid I don't know the answer to that one. I can ask around my colleagues if you like. And then she just asked the same question over and over again. And I just kept saying, I'm sorry, I just, I don't know the answer to that. And I can email you back if you, you're looking for those answers. And then she stopped and said, um, are you new to this job? And I said, I, yeah, I started a month ago. There was a pause. And she said, did you start yesterday? And I feel a lot of emotions inside. And I go, no, no, I, I didn't start yesterday. Uh, still kind of new to the job, though. And she said, "Mm, mm, you haven't done a good job. And it's been a long time since I've been that upset on the phone. Um, I, I was keeping my cool. And then I literally like went to the bathroom and was like, I'm trying not to swear. And I'm trying not to kick anything. And I'm trying not to cry. That was horrible. That is what this scene is like. It is so well written. To have that person on the phone whom you hate more than anyone in the world.
1: I only can hand out sympathies. um, And Mm. also a small level of smugness that I, at least I work in a field where I don't have to deal with customers.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You still have hard questions though, Duncan. Yeah. But I think in your job, in your job, if someone asks you a question, you go, I don't know. They say, that's fair enough. That was a hard question. I know that was a hard question. (laughs)
1: It is the benefit of my field. Also, I work with a lot of suppliers, so uh, money's going the other way. You know, I just ask those innocence questions, like, um, "And where's that? Oh, uh, oh yeah, that's not that's not arrived on time, and why's that? Oh, that's interesting." And, um, oh, Duncan, possible? that sounds horrible.
0: <laughs> I, sp- I
1: apologise. <laughs>
0: <laughs> anyway, bef- before Duncan and I become on either side of a political conspiracy um let's talk about the conspiracy
1: yes i like this conspiracy so this conspiracy yeah. is all about merwell trying to put a different king on the throne a man who technically has yeah. a better claim he's the older brother the existing king but he was passed over mm-hmm. in line of succession because he is an asshole yeah and more than that actually this one is this man is slightly more monstrous but it, that's the the fundamental. He's not a good person.
0: We have to get into the the shady aspects of this book. So, trigger warnings for rape and sexual violence.
1: Okay, here we go. The yep. this man, so who's never was a good person, the the brother to the king, yep. whose name I have forgotten, but there was a, a key uh, event which tipped him away oldest from oldest the son. line of succession, and that was some diplomats visited the country, and he raped. One of the daughters of the diplomats, and for this yeah. he was struck off, um, and I think was he anyway banished? Um,
0: yes, he was exiled.
1: Exactly, and so this guy wants to put him back on the phone, and it's interesting because what it puts in is this little conflict because there are there is an argument that people could go, well, he is technically the next man in line, you know, it's not unreasonable mm. to put him on. And I can see where Merwell looks at him and goes, "He didn't even do anything wrong by my twisted code of morality."
0: Yeah, that's true. That is exactly in Merwell's perspective. Merwell spends most of his of his book like perving on like his aide, uh, his assistant, and those scenes are well written in the way he writes about it because you get to see his logic about it and the way he justifies it to himself and the way he gives himself excuses. That was really perceptive and uh, that was well written. And, you know, topics around sexual violence, uh, you know, they're not things I like to read about. They make me uncomfortable. Um, it ruins a lot of my fun uh, when I read a story like this. And that is present in this story, unfortunately. Um, it, it does strike me, Duncan, that out of the last two books we've read, both of them have a scene when a character well the main female character is in danger of sexual violence like that is a, that is the the peril of the scene
1: it makes me feel uncomfortable to read it and it,
0: yeah it, it's it's not what i go it in does, for, for fun even though stranger doom is my favorite book and it's a hard
1: one because it's also what it says and does about the subject matter so obviously looking at it you know i'm not saying it shouldn't be in a book I think it's very important that writers sort of write about these expenses, and we can use it as to analyse. However, in the context of this mm. book in particular, and also our last book, it's mostly used or exclusively used to just make the villain or a particular enemy seem more villainous.
0: That's certainly the case for Hamilton, the, the eldest brother, the, the man who would be king. Like, that is why they do that. They need a suitably reprehensible reason to say this guy shouldn't be in charge
1: but there's also a balance there isn't it between these events uh being well like i mentioned you know the school is a plot point but it's not actually yep. really covered in the narrative in this event it's a plot point mm-hmm. we're told this we don't really witness it as a reader and it just it's just there to tick the box and go okay this man is very evil
0: yes and that's sort of um you could argue that that is um a, the most sensitive way to do it the most you know, we said before in Stranger Dreamer that it was a really well-handled and sensitive book about sexual violence. And you could say, well, that's similar. It doesn't happen on screen. It's, 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 it's mentioned as something that's happened in the past. Mm, somewhat true. On the other hand, it sort of utilizes a person's suffering exclusively for the purpose of making someone villainous. That character whom they talk about, she doesn't have a name. She doesn't appear in the story. Um, her her relationship to the event is never examined. It's sort of a means to an end. It is.
1: And in you many know? respects, you could... How do I put it? I don't want to say this is like a universal test, but in this particular context, I think it works. Imagine, Geordie, that that line was changed and it was, the diplomats visited and he strangled their favourite kitten. In terms of the plot, yeah. to the ah, I mean, villain, it would do the same that, thing. You mean
0: you're kind of yeah. right. You're kind of right. Yeah, I mean the the one difference there is that it's an argument about the reprehensibility of an act. Yeah, so I'm not saying but that you're, that you're right. That fundamentally,
1: the point is that he screwed up a diplomat screwed up mission. diplomatic mission, and he got kicked that... out for it. Like that's the point the plot's trying to make.
0: <sighs> anyway, the, that leads us into the the other one, um, and that is like again that the main character that Kerrigan, there's a scene where the threat of the scene is
1: you know there's a scene in this book with carrigan which is far more closer to home which we actually see almost play out from the reader's perspective Where carrigan yeah. is almost raped by this mercenary after she's been captured and this scene is a yep. lot first it's more challenging to read because we get a lot more detail is the setup yep. um What's the difference in this scene? And why do I feel that this one actually works almost a little better than the previous reference? Okay. This is my point I'm going to make forward, okay. And please enlighten me or argue against me. What this scene does is it's not used just to have that threat for Kerrigan. It's used to be a turning point yep. for another character who then feels
0: that's, that's right. yes.
1: kinship with Kerrigan. So Kerrigan is captured by a group of mercenaries uh three people mm-hmm. uh one of them is a fellow woman who is um, Jindara, Jindara. Who's incredibly sort of hostile to counting to start with and at the end of the novel uh, she mm-hmm. has a turn apart she turns her cloak from her previous employers she's like nope you are evil and this is the scene where she gets her first mm. like oh not everyone i'm on the side of are particularly good which i think she knew but this was the moment yeah. where she's like she couldn't hide from it anymore and that's why I think this scene works because of what it's exploring is, besides the fact that Kalgan and Jindara are on sort of different sides of the sort of the political war happening, they're mm-hmm. both on the same they're side. Yeah, both they women. both can relate to this threat, and on the they that kinship's there, and that's why Jindara sort of comes to her raid in this moment, and that's why I think this works because it's it's building that kinship, and it helps those characters. And this couldn't be replaced, I don't think, to the same extent. If it didn't have the, if it wasn't, mm. if it wasn't a sexual assault, if it was just assault, if he was just beating her, I don't know if Jindal would have stepped in, or it would have had the same impact. That's why I think this scene works.
0: Yeah, that is a good question about whether you could replace the peril in that scene with anything else, because there are a lot of scenes in fiction where characters uh, turn their cloak, as you said, where they change sides. And often it happens because the main character, um, the main character saves someone they don't have to. Classic scene in any adventure story: two people are I don't know, falling off a cliff, for example. The hero climbs up, and then they turn back and they risk their life to save like the enemy's henchman. They didn't have to do it; they chose to do it because it was the right thing to do. And then later on in the story, that person repays the uh, the hero by. Not turning for men or changing sides—you see that all the time. And you're right, but this is a lot more charged. This is a lot more real and a lot more personable than um, the equivalent scenes in other ones because the peril of the scene isn't just that Kerrigan will be raped; it's also Jendara. Um, she's in the same boat. <sighs> I, I, but this is, but the question becomes. What if they were going to be killed? Like, would it be more or less potent? It probably would be less potent. Would it be more sensitive? I kind of think it would, because I feel like in using this scene, you know, using the threat of it to generate drama, the last two books we've written, this scene has occurred, and both the writers have been women. And so if... I feel like if the writers have been men, we'd be a lot Quicker to be critical of this, to say this is fucked up that they they're using this as a means to an end to generate drama
1: in their yes. stories. Yes, that's that's you true. Know? And to be fair, that's why I feel very hesitant to kind of criticise its use. I think it's it's posing to point out when it is necessary brackets of um sort of air quotes. Yeah. Like I said earlier, you know, could he have just messed up in a different way? Could have done a different evil act? But mm-hmm. I do feel that, uh, Kristen Britain, in this in.
0: The most gratuitous scene of sexual violence I've ever seen in a book was a book written by a woman. I, I don't have any questions about that. I know that's true from my own personal perspective. So I know that's not a blank slate to write about this topic because you can still do it badly. You can still do it with a means to shock your audience and, um, and, and not do the topic justice. But yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's emotionally complicated.
1: I don't really have anything more to add on this. I think the best way to say is... No, and it's, it's hard to talk about. I do think that it. this... It didn't ruin the book for me. But I do think it's valuable to have this as a trigger warning for someone, especially as a YA book, coming into it. I think uh, Grislin Britain mm-hmm. has... Gives it uh, the appropriate amount of tact for the story that she's telling. Yeah, I and agree. I don't think it ultimately distracted from the narrative for me. Um, your experience will yeah. undoubtedly differ. But I am... So far, I am happy enough. Mm-hmm.
0: Let's talk about the conclusion of a book um, and move on. So we've talked about the political scheme and the way that political scheme uh, unfolds is Carrigan delivers her message uh, through one or two letters being handed over. They start to put together. that There is a conspiracy. Uh, They figure it out too late. And an, an assassination attempt happens on the King's life and his poor, poor terriers. Um, and the climax of the book is long and drawn out. It is, once again, we go back to adventure, adventure, adventure. Kerrigan has to save the king from being assassinated. She has to confront the Shadow Man. The, the evil elf man. Um, and there's a fight. And then she has to break into the castle. And then she has to get out of the castle. And then she has to lead an assault onto the castle. And then there's a confrontation with the evil wizard. And... And it goes bam, 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 back and forth. And Kristen Bitten is back in her element in this part of the book. And yeah, it's a, it's a well-written conclusion to an exciting adventure story.
1: It is. It's a real kind of continuation and picks up the pace again from the first sort of two thirds. It's definitely this long when she first reaches the kingdom. I think it's very intentional. I think it's very nice because I think we need to take that breath. Yeah,
0: it's a breath of fresh air. You go
1: and breathe, and it,
0: breathe, let it out. Release the And attention. it helps
1: build up the characters. I think that make this climax work. Because what we're getting, for the first bit of the story, a lot of the characters are flying by. They're kind of one stop, drop, hello, Calgary's moving on. What this does, she needs that little breath mm. to make us care about the people in this castle. Like, really care of them as characters. Because up to this point, the king, it's That's just, right. he's, my, he's the nation. He's the kingdom for most of the story. I'm saving the yeah. king here, but I'm also saving the kingdom. But she gives that little bit of time for us to actually like the king as a character. I think she does it very well. Uh, he's like, not... He's not so aloof, he's not on his high horse, but yet he's not trying too much to mm. be like, oh, once the courtiers away, I'm just like everyone else. It's a nice balance.
0: It is a nice balance, and I think it's a well-written character. But I do have a lot to say about monarchy in this okay, book. Okay,
1: that's going to have to be our final point, because I have a lot to say, and I think it's
0: I've got two points more to say in this book. Shall we... Ins- but I know that the second one has to follow up from this one. So let's talk about the monarchy and then my final thoughts in the book and then we'll end the episode. Uh, let's talk about monarchy.
1: Okay. Monarchy. People. People. Unless you live in one of the remaining monarchies in the world, which we do, mm. do not forget your next words, Jordi, that we you do. are subject to Her Majesty the Queen. And That's you shall right. Not be I don't kill enough. any swans. No, nope, neither do I. <laughs> and if you do, I turn it in immediately and apologize. It's pretty totally an accident. <laughs> yep. So for context here for people, in the UK, every swan is property of the crown. And if you That's accidentally right. kill a swan, you have to either turn it over or you have to receive written permission from the crown <laughs> saying that you're allowed to keep and eat the swan or taxiderm it, or whatever you want to do with it. <laughs> it's, it's a great law. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there's, there's this puts us in a bit of context when talking about monarchy because this book examines monarchy in an interesting way because there is an anti-monarchy league. A group of people who are like, we don't That's want any right. kings. None of this. Mm. Let's be a republic. What a terrible idea. Let's be a republic. And what's interesting is that Kristen Britton shows these people to be somewhat selfish, somewhat short-sighted, yeah. and basically idiots. Mm-hmm. She is incredibly pro on yeah, she is cracking down. She's like, no, how dare you try to change society? How dare you? Okay, I've got to be honest with you, Jordy. I liked this. I did. I liked it uh, okay. because I lo- I found it a little bit. It's fun because it's a fantasy land, and in the fantasy kingdoms, we always just go. You know what? It's king. It's kingdoms. That's just the way. That's a good way of doing it because we're set in a fantasy world, yeah. medieval themed okay, fantasy sure, world. Sure. And It's not analyzed enough. Sure. C- g- give me an example of a, a story, a fantasy story that has kings in it. Right. I refuse to do the same one again. I'm not doing Lord of the Rings. Narnia. Narnia is a very popular, well known series. The divine right of kings is very much very explicit in that series.
0: Sure. Great, yeah, exactly. And you've cut and you've cut to the core of the point, which is that you have a book like Narnia, which doesn't question the legitimacy of kings, because God himself chooses who is king. There's no anti monarchic um position in Narnia. And indeed book two is about the rightful kings and queens of Narnia taking their place over the usurpers very hamlet but the point being that christian Ben didn't have to she didn't have to put an anti-monarchic league in there she put it in there for a purpose she could have just said there are kings in this world deal with it most books where kings are a predominant factor they they get replaced by other kings we don't when they get overthrown we don't worry about whether democracy or communism or whatever is going to take its place In this book, the anti-monarchists are bad guys. They are seen, as you said, short-sighted, a bit idiotic, and fundamentally selfish. They want to put themselves in power. And the, the journey Kerrigan goes on is that she goes from kind of not really caring that much about the king. She says, like, I guess I'm patriotic, like, whatever. It's not a big deal to me. To being kind of fervently patriotic. And believing very strongly that Zachary is the rightful king. That he has to be king. The book is a good example of why you shouldn't have kings. Because the rightful heir to the throne is a bad guy. And the countermeasure to that would be that, ah, but the, the old king, their father, knew he was a bad guy. So he he forcefully abdicated his son and made the um, the younger brother king. Their th- Checks and balances. You just have to rely on kings to do the right thing. Obviously. The book doesn't give the anti monarchists any like real arguments. They want their lives improved, which is fair enough, but it doesn't go into how they're gonna accomplish their goal. They don't talk about overthrowing the king, they talk about running protests. They're presented like civil rights protesters.
1: It is and what's really interesting is so that they're anti monarchy, but the book doesn't go into what they're pro. They're not, pro-democracy. Yeah, They're exactly. not pro democracy. Yeah, exactly. We don't North. know that they want democracy. I'm assuming. Maybe they have. They could be anarcho capitalists. It's kind of definitely really interesting. It's interesting because they don't need, as far as I'm concerned already, to be in this plot. You don't need the anti monarchy. No. The scenes with them um, in, yeah. in North, could have been anything. Another distraction. Uh, just It could just be general civil unrest, mm-hmm. to be honest. Yes,
0: exactly. People are just angry that they not their taxes aren't paying for their roads. At the end of the story, taxes still aren't paying for roads. King Zachary hasn't made the land better. He's just managed to succeed in staying in power. Obviously, this is something that she wants to explore in later books. But I don't trust Kristen Britton to do them justice right now because she does a really bad job of depicting them, of their perspective at all. It really sounds like it's from less like Blairite perspective of don't change anything. Society shouldn't change in the slightest. Oh, why are you advocating for change, you bunch of social justice warriors?
1: Well, I don't know if I read that much onto them. To me, I read it more as a response in the fantasy genre. I read it more as a, not changing the actual world, but more of a let us and a fierce. I don't know what the climate was at the time. Maybe in 1998, there was a bit of a uh, another king, queen's fantasy book. I don't know. But it felt more to me like, a please, can we just have our classic fantasy tales? Can I just write a book that hearkens to the hero's quest and we're going to go through the kingdom?
0: You can't think of anything else that might have been happening in the 90s that might cause someone to write a book being anti-anti-monarchists. Rhymes with Princess Fiana.
1: Oh, oh,
0: oh, Ah, uh, yes, yes. You don't think anyone might have been like, Actually, we don't like the monarchy anymore, and might prompt someone to write a very pro monarchy book afterwards in response to them.
1: Yeah, I can think of a few things actually. Now you were, now you say it like that. Um, yeah. yeah, people. Here's the thing:
0: I don't have any strong opinions on monarchy. I'm neither for nor against. I genuinely don't care. They don't have political power. The Queen has a veto that can stop any little thing ping past she wants she's never used it she literally never will the moment she does there are no more kings no more queens they're gone
1: i am decidedly a little bit more pro monarchy on a more kind of sentimental level
0: yeah sentimentality is literally all they have going
1: for i it. like i like cuz it's the thing though cuz it's separating and i think that's interesting what we see in this book the idea of separating the institute of monarchy and the monarch because I would say, oh yeah, I'm quite a big fan of uh, Queen Elizabeth as a sort of public figure. And I think we get Carrigan goes from being like, oh yeah, I'm like uh, generally, yeah, I'll go save the king, to I need to save Zachary. Hmm.
0: Seems- yeah, and that's how she makes the reader pro-monar- pro-monarchy, that you see Zachary as a person, and you like Zachary, so you want Zachary to stay in power. But what are Zachary's kids going to be like? Are they going to be good? Are they going to be like their uncle?
1: Oh, now, Dordie, what you're setting me up here is making you read Miss Spawn because it has such a wonderful analysis of um, sort of monarchy and the checks and balances mm. that kind of come into play. Yeah. I think we might have to do that. The
0: reason day. why I'm so tuned in on this, I'm so focused on this, is that I'm writing a book in which, like, uh, in which it's about, like, someone taking over a throne, saying, that's a bad king, I'm going to kill that king, and I'm going to take charge. So I keep thinking about what it looks like to have just the changing of a guard, that there won't be any fundamental change and how to express that even though the political system isn't changing that some good can yet come of this and it's hard because it's hard to justify that a king taking over from an old one really fundamentally changes anything the political system is still completely unjust how can you say they're making the world a more just place and there is no way to do it perfectly because monarchy is a no, quite one of the worst possible kind of systems statement. of government.
1: How do you, you know, is it any more just? And is there such a thing as a just king? If that king is, it, you know, against the power in an unjust mm-hmm. way. And I also think it's not only just the fact that they achieve a little to the anti-monarchists. It's like their goals as well. They're like, we want more taxes to be spent on the roads. And the king's like, I'm mm-hmm. trying to stop the evil powers flooding the land.
0: Right, exactly. It's exactly, it's sort of like political whataboutism. Why can't you solve the things I want you to vote? I voted for you. Why aren't you passing the things I want you to, to pass? Well, I'm focusing on these other big things. I have to stop the other political party. And that means I don't do my job and give you the things you want me to vote for. It's it's the same analysis of why are you trying to change society? We have to keep things as they are right now.
1: You see, reading this book, I didn't feel nearly as politically charged as this conversation turning out to be. I actually felt this book was quite, chill, apart from that one little scene where it's like, wow, she really slapped down the anti-monarchists.
0: We'll have to see how that emerges in, of, in later books down the line. I, I guess. hope she continues it. My final thing before we end this episode, Duncan.
1: What is it, Geordie? What's your final key point here?
0: Another thing that follows on for next week.
1: Bam, bam, bam. New love triangle. Here oh, we go. Oh, God. Okay, people, right. I'm talking about the love triangle. Geordie, I must silence you for a moment. I, I'm zipping it. This love, chi- this love triangle why is it here it is brought on so quickly it is so slapdash it's in the last third honestly i genuinely for the first time i was having that moment where i was like oh i thought she was going to fall in love with the the stable woman over this regal bloke who's just shown up the regal bloke disappears he gets wounded like a third into the climax and just sits it out. And then at the end, he's like, I guess we'll go our separate ways. And I'm like, yeah, I guess you better go your separate ways because you haven't fallen in love. It. I was very let down and I was like, it's okay that it's here, but if you remove this and just cut the time, I think I would have enjoyed myself mm-hmm. more. Or if you spent more time focusing on the platonic relationship, or make it not platonic, whatever, of um, mm-hmm. Carrigan and I can keep so the 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 stable girl because I've forgotten her name. She's twelve. She's twelve. Yeah, yeah. platonic relationship. How was Carrigan though? Isn't she only fifteen? Okay. We don't know. We don't know. Her
0: age is never given. Oh my god, that's an
1: interesting. We've no idea. I never noticed that. That's important for what I'm saying. I next, just decided but keep going. she was like. I decided she was fifteen. I just did that based on her character and like it being sort of a young adult story and her being kicked out of school. Although the school you could read more as university. Who knows? But yeah, because of that, I was just like. I just didn't care that I felt they were all too young for me to like have a romance and the romance that was there wasn't committed to in the same way. Okay, Geordie, what did you think?
0: You didn't mention the king.
1: What did the king do?
0: He's the upper part of a triangle.
1: Oh, oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> that is the most genuine reaction I've ever gotten out of you. Anyway, sometimes it's best to um not read into things for your own enjoyment, but because he's in his thirties, and she even makes a point about yeah. him looking young or young for his years, or and it's a bit. Yeah. I was just like, I hope we're just trying to make yeah. him seem like a like youth equals good. I but please move on. So you think he's in his thirties,
0: right? I think so. Because I think he's like late thirties, going on thirties. Okay doesn't matter doesn't change anything Kerrigan is at the oldest 17 at the
1: oldest if the king was 19 years old i'd be like "Eh, he's still a little old for you but it does strike me more as a one sided crush i would say that i feel like it's more of a Kerrigan's one-sided rather than the king legitimately showing interest do you agree with that statement i disagree okay
0: i disagree that's not how i read it
1: okay go on say your bit now I,
0: that's just my reading. I from the, from the way he talks to her in the last couple of chapters, I got the feeling that that you know that that was happening. And the first teaser of that is in the spyglass. There's a scene she looked into the future and she sees a scene of the king in a prison cell being like, "Don't leave me, Kerrigan. Don't leave me." That's a that's something in a follow up book. That that is straight up. I think that is the direction she's going. I think that is the ship which. The author is pushing.
1: It would explain why the other ship is so underdeveloped. Yeah. Oh, I hope she doesn't. Will... I really because oh, I've like, said that. Oh, surely maybe it's going down more like a father-daughter route. The thing is, she already has a really strong father relationship, which we haven't really touched on. But safe to say, it was quite nice, and I liked reading about yeah. him and his man. He's a great character. His manservant is the manservant that Malice needed. Go, go on. Oh right. Okay then. Uh, so Kerrigan's father has a sort of steward, manservant, scribe, travel companion, yep. bloke. And basically they go about together. He's there to help him. There's scenes of them like camping on the road and like remembering their youth. Because they're both like big business traders. But they used to be like a small startup together. And you really just felt like these guys have been on the road for years. That they both have their own kind of goals and mm-hmm. family lives. But like they're just best friends. Despite being that kind of master servant relationship. And they're just fun to be around. Mm-hmm. I felt that a lot in this book. Uh, besides, yeah, great companionship, between, I agree. like, Geordie said, with the king, I see where he's reading into it and that feeling awkward. I personally didn't read it that way. I've read it more like a schoolgirl crush or like a slightly older, like, teacher or mentor figure. But I just liked. Duncan? Yeah?
0: Would you like to find out? We are now at a part of the show where we decide what book we're going to read next week. And I would like your opinion, Duncan. Do you think. We should read the
1: next book in the series. Oh wow. I didn't expect you to do that, Geordie. Geordie, if you want to pick I haven't done this yet.
0: You've you've picked one of the sequel to one of my books. I haven't picked a sequel to one of yours yet, and I feel like this is
1: it. Geordie, if you want to read the sequel to Green Rider, I say you may do it. For you was significant. It
0: sounds like you're not interested in reading the next one.
1: I'm not uh, to be honest I really enjoyed this book I really enjoy this book and I recommend this book to people especially as an example of really good YA sort of high fantasy um this will supplant personally for me like I've always struggled like oh trying to like recommend to like younger readers like oh Belgrade not really I don't think that's really the vibe probably you don't want to go into like your George Martin's, yeah, and I read a lot more of The Grimdark, Jo Abercrombie. This was like, no, this is perfect, like, YA. This is perfect, like, a companion to missborn I recommend it. But I did feel this first book functions so well as a standalone. I could have walked away. I am happy with The Green Rider. Like, the story has been told. But I did like her okay. writing.
0: Okay. I, I appreciate that. I was considering just jumping in and choosing it. I hear that you're kind of ready to leave it alone for a bit. And I feel like we are going to revisit it. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it in my own time. And if I f- and I'm going to assess then if I think it's worth bringing to the table. Uh, so I'll, I'll be our taste test. But now I have to decide another book to read. And I didn't have another book prepared, Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I have a decision, one that's been in my back pocket. So since I'm choosing it, the next book we're going to read... Um, I'm gonna pick a favorite of mine. Um, we've been very adventurous, we've been trying some new stuff. That's basically three in a row that we're going to unfamiliar stuff, even though I had read Twilight before. So I'm gonna go to a favorite. I'm gonna go to one which I'm really excited to talk, talk to you about. One of my favorite fantasy novels. Ooh. We're gonna read American Gods.
1: <gasps> Neil Gaiman. Yeah. I'm very excited. I have always wanted to read American gods, I've never gotten around to it. It's been on my to read list mm. for years. Geordie, I'm very excited you picked this book. I'm so glad. I, I, it's listen, it's gonna be a long one.
0: Like this book is only a little bit longer than Green Rider, but it is so much more dense. This this so brace yourselves, everyone. And if you listen to this uh, when this episode comes out, take advantage of those two weeks because um because it feels a lot heftier than Green Rider. Green Rider flew by like a like a mighty steed. This one it stews it takes its time but yeah fantastic book i can't wait to talk about it
1: looking forward to it already and if any of you guys want to send in your thoughts on american gods ahead of next week's episodes please always feel free to email us in at is this just fantasy podcast at gmail.com and if you have thoughts mm. on green rider like i said this was the first time for us but if this was a book that maybe you read back in the day i'd love to hear people's thoughts mm-hmm. about green rider for when it came out yeah the fantasy landscape was very different back in 1998 I bet and I'd love to hear someone who yeah. maybe read it We then. should
0: we should over time we should build a bit of a timeline about the different fantasy genres and have a change over time because um because I'd be really interested to see how 1990s fantasy is different from 1980s fantasy
1: It's such an interesting topic particularly when you look at like the rise and fall mm. of so maybe more the sword and sorcery aspect and then those big influences mm-hmm. come crashing down you know always shocks me when you look at like the big series like uh song of ice and fire you know the 2010s dominated but the game of thrones came out in 96 mm-hmm. a really interesting kind of landscape to look at so yeah if you have thoughts on that people if you've read green riders you've read the rest of the series email us in this just yeah. and tell us about those love triangles we want to find out all about them so remember, is this just fantasy podcast at gmail.com. Love to hear your thoughts and we'll be reading out the interesting opinions mm-hmm. here on the pot.
0: Yeah, and please rate this podcast wherever you find it. Uh really excited to build some more audience interaction. We wanna hear from you. All right then. Alright. The next time then. Let's get out of a saddle. I've been your host, Geordie Bailey.
1: And I've been his noble steed. <laughs> See you next week, guys. Bye bye. Well,